All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 through 10. And we have been, we have been learning along the way what we once were without Christ and the characteristics which permeated our lives when we were outside of Christ found in verses 1 through 3. And we have discovered that our new position as a Christian is the exact opposite of the person who is not a Christian. That when your new life in Christ is contrasted with your old life, it becomes clear, at least it should become clear, that you are not the person you used to be and you don't live where you used to live before. You and I are completely different than what we were. And the, the new direction of our life is to follow, to love, and serve the Lord. We are alive to God and the very word religion really means to be bound back to God. So, religion is, is pretty furniture for a, a spiritual dead man's chamber. But the living person rips off his grave clothes and such garments unsuitable for life. A tomb is not a fit place for a living person. A person who has become a Christian is a person who is now clothed in living clothes, in white robes. They are clothed and in their right mind. They are no longer insane. Do you know that you were insane before you came to Christ? like the demoniac of Gadaria, who was swept clean by Christ of all the demons, and he sat there, the Bible said, clothed and in his right mind. See, when you come to Christ, you are actually a person who is now sane. That means you have a sound, you have sound ground foundation for a sound mind. And for looking at the world and your life and everything in it, everything that has to deal with life in the way God intended, that the Christian has, has experienced a radical change of spiritual environment and should, that should really affect his whole way of life. He is different. He's changed. New. Alive like never before. That God has opened the windows of his soul and is now letting in spiritual life. And for the first time, everything looks different when you become a Christian. Hugh Martin, in his uh, parables of the gospel, tells of a story of a... a a rather rough, uncultured man who fell in love with this beautiful vase in a room. He purchased the vase and he brought it back home and the vase became a kind of a judgment on his surroundings. He had to clean up the room and make it worthy of the vase. The curtains looked dingy beside it. The old chair with the stuffing coming out of it, out of the seat, didn't do anymore. The wallpaper and paint needed renewing. Gradually, because of that vase, the whole room got transformed. You know what happens when you do something like that in your house, right? You buy something new, you buy curtains, and all of a sudden the walls don't look so good, right? You buy something else, and all of a sudden the, the chairs and table look shabby, the rug looks worn out, and, and all kinds of things, and you say, we got everything goes, and everything new comes in, and then new, it's new and refreshed and transformed, and in, in a very similar way, when Christ is your Lord and Savior and His Spirit makes His home with you, your old life looks dingy. You begin to think, how could I ever have thought like that? 
How could I have ever done those things? How could I ever have treated someone that way? Everything looks dingy in your life. And in a sense, when the Lord rests upon the mantle of your heart, your whole life gets transformed. Everything looks dingy. That's a good thing. See, we become new. We become new. See, so let, me, let me mention from last time some of the marks of the genuine new self that we have because it is vital for the Christian to understand that their new nature is a nature that loves God. A person with a new self experiences a growing love for God and a delight in His Word. Ask yourself, have I and do, or do I long in the deepest part of my heart to love God, to draw near to Him? Can, can you and I say as the psalmist in Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, we have a nature now that loves God. We also have a nature that longs for holiness. God's holy. We desire to be holy. We have a nature now that senses the resistance between the new self and the flesh. We were once dominated in our mind by sinful ideas and desires. Now we're dominated in our mind by spiritual things. We also have a nature with a growing sense sensitivity to sin. We are more sensitive now to sin and we have an ever-growing sensitivity to sin. The more and more we learn God's word and live for the Lord, that's the way it is. We want to get sin out because we know sin offends God and we love God, so therefore we don't want to offend the one we love and we confess our sin, get it right, and get it out of our lives. We also have a nature that avoids everything commanded in the word of God and we have a nature with an appetite for spiritual things. You know, one thing that I've learned in witnessing and when someone actually comes to Christ, one of the first things that God does in a person's life is give them, give them a desire for God's Word. They want to know what God says. They have a spiritual appetite for spiritual things that they never had before. In fact, just take your Bibles for a minute, turn it into... Uh, over to 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to look at something for a minute. 1 Peter chapter 2. Because here, he gives us, in that one particular person, 1 Peter 2, 2, where he says this, like newborn babes, look what it says, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. First thing that happens is that you desire the Word of God, the milk of the Word of God, then finally the meat of the Word of God. But here, it's basically setting us up in this sense that a baby desires one thing, and that's the milk of its mother. But there are things that can quench your desire for the milk of the Word of God. And that's found in 1 Peter 1 verse 23 where it says for you have been born again not of seed which is perishable perishable but imperishable that is through the living and enduring word of God see so you stop going back to the source of your new life the word of God you stop going back there you set aside the word of God and therefore it quenches your desire another thing that quenches your desire is you become careless of putting off sin in 1 Peter 2 1 he lists a bunch of sins, and he says, therefore, putting aside all malice, all deceit, that's deception, all hypocrisy, that's false everything, envy, and of course, slander, speaking evil and gossip and all those kind of things. See, there's no desire for the word when sin is not dealt with in the word of God. No desire. The word of God keeps pushing the garbage out of your mind and out of your life. But when you don't, when you're careless, 
with putting off sin, it stifles that desire. Another thing is that you stop admitting that you need the Word of God. Verse 2 of 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babes long for the pure milk, that the desire for the pure milk of the Word should always be like a newborn baby's desire for its mother's milk. Is that desire there in your life? Do you desire the Word of God? Or has sin crept in and quenched it? Also, you, you stop pursuing spiritual growth. Verse 2 of First Peter 2, like newborn, babe, newborn babies long for the pure miracle of the Word, so that it may grow, you may grow in respect to salvation, that you stop pursuing spiritual growth. You stop growing. So it quenches the desire for the Word. And then you stop remembering. And this is where I want to move into Ephesians. You stop when your desire for the word is not there and you're not in the word, then you know what happens? You stop remembering who God is and who you are. Look what it says, 1 Peter 2, verse 3 through 5. It says, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord and coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. Look at verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, you stop remembering who God is and that God is a God of great, great kindness and what you have in your life you don't deserve but God has been kind. You forget he's kind. And then you forget who you are, that you're being built up into God's program, into God's house to bring glory to the Lord. That's, what you're, that's what's going on, really, in our lives. So sometimes a true believer will fail to do these things. They, sometimes a true believer will have their desire for the word quenched, but they'll get it back if they still keep themselves within the means of grace, the fellowship of believers, the hearing of the word of God, the partaking of the Lord's table, the, uh, the pub public prayers, all those, all those things God's given us to grow us. We, he will bring us back to a place where we'll desire the word of God again so we can teach others what God taught us. So we can be a discipler and pour into others what God's teaching us. That's what we want. That's where God is bringing every single one of us. And ultimately, the re regular direction of your life will be to, to serve God and to love Him. Now, that lends itself nicely to our Ephesians study. So then, the study of Ephesians, if you have been engaged in paying attention your understanding should be clearer about what God has done for you by His grace in Christ. It should be clearer what you were. It should be clearer what you are. And this morning, it should be clearer what you shall be. See, why has God done all these things for sinners such as us? Why has He done it? Well, it's because he wants to show forth truths concerning himself. Truths about his character that are connected to his work and that are reflected in his people. Especially God's great plan of eternity to rescue humankind from the great fall into sin. So today, wrap your mind around three great things that you are in God's plan of salvation. Three great things. The first one is this. Found in verse number 7, back to Ephesians chapter 2. The first one is this. You are and shall be a display of God's glory. Have you looked at yourself like that lately? That you, you are and shall be a display of God's glory. You consider when you consider something that is special or expensive or important, usually you put it behind glass and you put it on display. Most of the time you go into a school and you'll see a, a trophy case, right? Well, a trophy case shows us 
that they're putting those trophies on display. Of course, you can't open it up and touch them and mess with them. You need just to look at them. All right? It shows somewhat the glory of the school that won these trophies, and now it's displayed as soon as you usually walk in the front door. There it is, the trophy cases there. Well, look at, look at our passage in verse number 7. So in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, I have already said that the glory, God's glory is reflected in the lives of his people, where Jesus even says, they are my glory. In John 17, 10, it says, all who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory, or I am glorified in them. That God's glory is the, the revelation of his character and presence and the more we know Christ the more we reflect his glory we are not only called to reflect God's glory here and now that is one theological writer penned God made us to magnify his greatness the way telescopes magnify stars that he created us to put his goodness, to put his truth, to put his wisdom and his beauty and his justice on display so people can see it. But someday, the greatest display of God's glory will come in the future. And will come, as you says, look in verse number 7, it says, so that in the ages to come, he might show or display his surpassing riches, the surpassing riches of his grace. So from our text, this display of God's glory will take place more than once. It says in the ages, plural, ages. You know, one age supervening upon another like successive waves of the sea, one upon another. And he's going to do it upon us who had been enemies of God. And we become the recipients of extraordinary ger generosity. And God has been doing this in us. We have already seen from chapter 1, of verse 21, that the Jewish concept of time was divided like this. This age and the age to come. Not only it says in verse 21 of chapter 1, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That there is that the point there was the supremacy of Christ, not only that belonged to this age, but also the one that would come. And of course, the future age has all, always been viewed in the Bible as the age, the messianic age. It is the time when Messiah will rule with justice and put down all powers and authorities that are opposed to him. Now, here in this passage that there is a strong indication that God is going to put the church on display in the ages before, in, and after the Messianic age, or in eternity. And in any case, God will demonstrate his glory. He will, by showing the whole of the church gathered in Christ out of this dark world. That means this will be a society of people, a society of pardoned rebels, who we are. That's, he's going to put us on display. God is going to show the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places his wisdom in the church that is displaying his glory. Well, if you look over to chapter 3 of Ephesians, in verse number 10, you'll say that's what it says. It says in, in Ephesians 3.10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Ultimately, it's going to be quite a remarkable gathering and display of the character and the works of God because this gathering is going to include peoples from all kinds of social and ethnic 
and language and eclectic religious backgrounds. But they will have one specific thread that connects them all together. You know what it is? They sing. What? They all sing, and they sing loud. That's what connects them together. You say, wait, 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 where are you going with this? Look at Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7 in verse number 10, the Word of God tells us quite specifically that they all sing loud in unison about the same thing. In Revelation 7 verse 10 it says, And they cry out, with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So you know who this is? This is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one sitting on the throne. And the Lamb being Christ Himself. Well, who are those who are crying out? Well, I want to let the Scripture speak for itself. If you look at verse number 9 of Revelation 7, it says this, after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the land, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And look at verse number 11. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshiped God. And this, is, this was the multitude's response when that happened in verse 12. This could be our only response. It says this, saying, Amen. You know what Amen means? So be it. Amen, look at blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And inclusio. This is a sandwich. That means here's a cap on each end and it cannot be changed. That God is going to get glory from his church. He is going to display us as a trophy is displayed inside of a cabinet and he's going to say, look at these. Look at these. These are mine they have been saved by my grace. And so you know that we gather every Lord's Day to worship our great God and Savior, but our present gathering to worship is only a precursor to the gathering that will take place in the future in the presence of God and before all the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In that gathering... God will display his wisdom. He will display his power. He will display his rich mercies, his inexhaustible grace, his great love, and the bright glory of his church will reflect all of his characteristics. See, the Father could only do this. He could only do this in his kindness. If you look at the end of verse 7 of uh, Ephesians chapter 2, going back there, it says, he could only do this toward us in Christ Jesus. Now, this is an amazing statement here. Because the only way, the only way that the Father can show his kindness on you and display you in glory and throughout the ages that, he may, that we may reflect his characteristics and bring glory to his name is only through Christ, is only in Christ. That's the only way. So again, the exclusive nature of salvation. That means that there are no benefits that can, can come to us unless it comes through Jesus Christ. Why is that so? It is because God has planned it that way. He only deals with humankind and blesses them in and through Jesus Christ, period. There's no other way that it comes. So all who come to know Christ will be on display to show forth the surpassing riches of his 
grace and kindness towards us, God's going to say, look at what I've done. Look at this vast humanity that I've saved out of a dark world. And you're going to be there. You're going to be there who know Christ. Isn't that a great thing? The Bible's telling us about something that's going to happen, and we're going to be there. That's just mind-blowing. Wrap your mind around that. Especially when you're feeling discouraged and depressed. Wait a minute. This, this is what God's doing in you. This is who you are and what you shall be. You see how great it is to be a believer? But this leads me to my second point, and it's this. That you are and shall be a trophy of God's grace. Look at verse number 8 and 9 of our passage. This is a very popular passage of Scripture. Everyone who witnesses to anyone uses this passage. For it says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. Let me stop there. There's two things under this point, and that is this. That we Christians are what we are and what we will be solely. As a result of God's grace, we sang about, as a great song to sing about this morning, right? It's, it's, it's God's grace. You see, when we see the depth of sin to which we all have fallen, we should conclude, doing the math properly, that we deserve to be blotted out of existence. We deserve to be blotted out from the presence of God and sent away from, from him forever, yet it is at that point point that God shows his grace and grace is that which informs the sinful people the people who come to Christ that in spite of them in spite of what is true of them in spite of the depth of their sin when they receive God's grace he looks at them with favor in Romans 5 20 it says the law came in so that transgression would increase but where sin increases what does it say Grace abounds all the more. There's no one who could sin such great sin that the grace of God cannot overcome. It's just overflowing, overflowing. That's how the Bible describes it. That the gospel is a gospel of grace. And when a repentant sinner receives the gospel of grace, God undoes completely everything resulting from their sin and through grace the repentant sinners receives the peace of God Paul says it like this therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained an introduction by faith into grace in which we stand and we exult in hope and of the glory of God. So it's this grace that's the center of, of what we believe. So we come into this new life and position according to grace. For by grace you have been saved. And if you remember, grace means God giving you what you do not deserve. You do not deserve his forgiveness. He's giving it to you. You do not deserve his substitutionary sacrifice on your, on your behalf, but he's giving it to you. See, God, the grace is unmerited favor, kindness shown to someone who does not deserve any kindness at all. At all, whatsoever. See, the essence of grace is that it is a free gift. And a free gift is something that cannot be earned that which no man can claim as his right, that which no one can claim as far as to be bought, that which cannot be worked for. It's like what Paul says in another passage of Scripture in Romans 3.24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So grace directly connected to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. That grace is that which God does for mankind through his Son, which mankind cannot earn and does not deserve and cannot merit. That because of God's grace, we who are saints, we who are faithful, 
we who are in Christ, we who are chosen, we who are adopted, we who are accepted in the beloved, we have redemption because, because of his death and we are rescued from his wrath and we are rescued from bondage we have forgiveness we have a new nature we have the holy spirit we're in a new family and he's given us knowledge and insight to know his work and will both now and for the future who else has that what kind of what more privileges do you want as a believer but be sure of this be sure of this no one will be standing in the great assembly because of their own self-righteousness. No one will be there because of their good works. No one will be good there, there because of their personal goodness. Everyone, everyone who will be standing in the great assembly, reflecting the glory of God, will be there exclusively upon God's grace alone. That is it. There is no way that anyone could get there apart from that. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 27, when we get there, if you look over to the passage, it says this about the church, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Brethren, be sure of this. That because salvation is by grace alone through faith, it can never be by any human initiative, nor is it a reward for good deeds. We Christians are what we are and what we will be by God's grace alone. So that means this. There can be no grounds for boasting. There is absolutely no ground. If you look at verse number 9 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Not a result of works, so that no one, what? May boast. No one may boast. In other words, if you can take any credit for anything in your salvation, that's boasting. In fact, it's not only boasting, but it's robbing God of glory which is worse. So if you say that you're good, if you say that you're moral, if you say that you're a religious person and, and that God should accept me based on what I can offer him by way of my good works, well, be aware of this. That the gospel of God's grace has always denounced the reliance upon good works. Always. If you are trying to justify yourself by good works, you are walking straight to hell. You know, it was, it was the late Dr. Kennedy, James Kennedy, if anybody took evangelism, evangelism explosion in our church, uh, he's now passed away. Uh, but great, great, uh, great guy and loved the Lord and was a great evangelist, along with pastor and writer and all kinds of things. But he had a keen observation about religion. And this is what he said one day. He says, if you or I came up with a religion, we got our heads together and we says, okay, let, let's come up with a religion. He says this, I can tell you what the message would be. It would be this. Follow this set of rules, and if you do it well enough, then you may be accepted into nirvana, or paradise, or heaven, or wherever you're trying to go. Don't do this, don't do that, would be the mantra. Perhaps you may earn your way to heaven. He asked then this question, how do I know that this is what your religion would look like, or our religion would look like? Because that is exactly what every religion invented by man in this world looks like. All of the pagan religions of the world are the same. Yes, they are the same no matter what form they take. It is always what a person can do to earn their salvation. It is always religion by works. Always. 
But remember, biblical Christianity is not the same as others. No, it's, it's, it stands in a category all by itself that Christianity teaches the very opposite of all other religions. We're exclusive. It is a message of grace, and grace is a wonderment. It's an astonishment. And it's in other places, Paul tells us this, like in Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Or Galatians, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. So every other religion teaches that we will get to wherever we're going by what we have done. Christianity, on the, on, is, on the contrary, teaches that we will get to heaven in spite of what we have done. We will get there because what God has done, and we will get there believing by faith in His grace. So we hear all the time in the media the benefits of human beings, that they deserve every good thing. But what we really deserve is the just condemnation of God. We're all guilty. And the amazing thing about what Christ offers us is not what we actually deserve. We are the very opposite of what we deserve. He offers us free, sovereign, unconditional grace, the free gift of eternal life, paid for by His Son, paid for at an infinite cost to all those who trust Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior. That's how we get saved, right? See, so this passage here in our text, in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. It is very strange indeed that God would do it so. But I am, I am for one, thankful that he has done it like this. Are you not? thankful is that not our response to god thankfulness that is our only response thank you so that means that all boasting is excluded salvation is not of ourselves paul even said it again in romans 3 where is boasting he says this it is excluded but what kind of law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. See, faith is not the cause of salvation. Christ is the cause of salvation. Faith is an instrument through which this salvation, which is of God's grace, comes to us. See, that's the great thing about it. So God's power is boundless. It can do anything. His grace is, is, is infinite. It's inexhaustible. His grace is enough to do anything, to give everything, even as Paul said to the chief of sinners, whom he considered himself, that there is no sinner that has sinned too much for God's grace to save. His grace could reach anyone, anywhere, at any time, and that means that millions of alcoholics and drug addicts have been transformed. Vile and profane people have been made pure of speech. Women of the streets have been made chaste and chaste and godly. All manner of people, no matter who they are, even those of religious systems who thought they were heading on the right road, but realized that the sign that was pointing to heaven was actually pointing to hell, even them... God has changed by his amazing, wonderful grace because I was one of them. I was one of them. And he got hold of my attention and he saved me. He reached down to this sinful being who thought he was a good person and saved him. So that means that grace is a gift of God by which he extends mercy, loving kindness, and salvation to sinners who are in deep need. These are things that man needs, but everything a sinning man needs is found at the cross. Everything a sinning man needs is found in Jesus Christ alone and in his free grace. 
if that wasn't so you would not be here we would be done and you would already be home so see you are what you are and what you shall be because of God what I'm preaching about this morning is that salvation is about God there's one last thing in verse 10 that we are and shall be a masterpiece of God's workmanship look what it says in verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him in them alright so in this passage of scripture there's several things going on here number one we are God's workmanship from first to last the word workmanship actually is derived well we actually derive our English word poem you know poem is something that has a lot of structure to it poem just doesn't happen out of thin air somebody has to think about what they write and if they write correct poetry they have to use the meter and the symmetry that goes with poetry or it's not poetry see there's structure to it the word of God is saying here listen God made this He's the one who we're manufactured products from God. We are his new creation in Jesus Christ. That God is working in you in order to work through you. That we are now reshaped to do good works. So according to our passage, that God saves first by his free grace. First he does that, which makes us biblical Christians. And then, and only then, after we have been born again, that we learn from God's word that salvation is a call to a life of good works. We now have the capacity to do good works that glorify God. Because that capacity has been given to us by God. And not only that, if you notice what it says in verse number 10, it says, here it says, for which God prepared beforehand. It's that word, prognosco, that tells us that God has done something beforehand. We were elect before the foundation of the world. When God elected us in eternity, before anything was created, he also elected us to do good works that he ordained for us. So that all of us, all of us Christians, are to perform the good works God has prepared for us to walk in. Now it starts. Right now. It starts the moment you come to Christ. See, we do not manufacture these good works. They are a result of God's preparatory work that He works in our hearts because we are in Christ. He prepared them beforehand. See, you and I once walked in, the tres- in trespasses and sin. We started out that in, in verses 1 through 3. We walked there. That was our manner of life, right? Now we walk in good works. It's quite different. See, works cannot save you, but they are a result of true conversion. Now Christ is equipping us for our walk and our work on earth So that means this, that good works is the fruit of genuine conversion of Christ. These are the things that flow out of us. These are the things that God has already prepared for all of us. You know, uh, one person had said that all good works in the world cannot put us right with God, but there is something radically wrong with Christianity which does not issue in good works. When I was over in preaching through Hebrews, when we came to chapter 10 of Hebrews, it said this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and what? Good deeds or good works. See, we're, so what we're to do this? So love is the driving motive and good deed is the practice of the love. How do I bring glory to God here? I do good deeds. In fact, the vessels of good, good deeds are... As it says in Timothy, therefore, if anyone cleanse himself from these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. The motive 
of good deeds is to glorify the Father in heaven. It says that in Matthew. Good works glorify your Father who is in heaven. The objects of good deeds are people. That's the object of our good deeds, people. Let your light shine before men in such a way they may what? See your good works. The purpose of good deeds is to show people God. The purpose of good deeds is to show people God. Titus 3, 14, our people must also learn to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs so that they, may, they will not be unfruitful. The realm of good deeds is what I'm talking about here. You are. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The way God created you physically and gifted you spiritually and the measure of gift he has given you is where you use your, mainly use your, uh, perform your good deeds. The preparation of good deeds is, comes from the word of God. That you cannot even know what they are. You cannot even be equipped with what they are unless you are in the Word of God. Because the Word of God will completely outfit us, make us able to meet all needs. For what does it say in that famous passage of Scripture? All Scripture is inspired of God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And then, of course, the direction of good works would be that we would be fruit-bearing, that we would increase in the knowledge of God. In fact, it says in Colossians, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. But you know what? So all, people always ask me this, well, what good works should I do? Well, there's a general category of good works. And of course, that general category is anything. Anything done by a Christian out of love for God is good works. Matter of fact, your whole life is good works. Acts of benevolence to the poor, to the less fortunate, to the sick, to the weak, to the feeble, to the elderly, to the widow, to the orphan, to the missionaries, to the young married, to the young men, to the young women, care packages, letters, emails, texts, clothing, food, helps, companionships, conversation, cleaning someone's house, mowing someone's lawn, shoveling the snow, praying with them, inviting them to your home, bringing them to church, to the doctors, whatever it may be, giving them, of course, the gospel and displaying in your life the glory of God because you are now a believer are all good works. Everything you do can be good works towards God. Even Jesus says, even if you offer a cold cup of water to someone, right? If you do it unto me, I'm pleased with that. That brings me glory. Can you do that? You can do that. I can do that. Let's not make a big deal out of it in the sense of it gets so confusing you don't know what it is. No, it's clear what it is. It's clear what it is. In fact, the affirmation of good works, and what I'm the, highlighting what I just said in my last point is that good works is the fruit of genuine conversion to Christ. I want everybody to turn to James chapter 2. Because good works are a vital part of the proof and fruit of your salvation. It proves you have living faith and affirms you are a child of God. If you look at James 2, verse number 15, it says, If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, Verse 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? Verse 17, even so faith, if it has 
no works is dead being by itself verse 18 but someone may say well someone may well say you have faith and i have works show me your faith without the works and i will show you my faith by my works verse 19 you believe that god is one you do well the demons also believe and shudder and verse 20 but are you willing to recognize O foolish fellow that faith without works is useless or dead see the bible is saying that after conversion to christ you have been ordained by god to perform good works so and saying all that, you thought salvation was about you. Well, salvation is about who God is and the great things he has done. You are and shall be a display of his glory. You are and shall be a trophy of his grace. You are and shall be a masterpiece of his workmanship. And bringing glory to God starts right now. And someday in the great assembly, he'll bring glory to God in all the universe. See, that's God's plan. And you're part of it. And that's exciting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your great goodness. Lord, your great kindness towards us, Lord, in which we did not deserve. But I pray, Lord, every day we would be overwhelmingly thankful that you extended your grace to us that you reached out to us, and Lord, that you saved us like no one else can, and that you opened our eyes to see, and that you took us from one place and put us in another place. Lord, you made us what we, took us from where we were and are making us what we shall be. And I thank you, Lord, that we're all being transformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, this morning, we give you glory. We praise you. But I pray, Lord, every day of our lives, because you have called us to salvation, let us manifest your glory in the good works that you allow us to do, whether it's a teaching of a Sunday school class or ministering to a neighbor or picking someone up or helping someone out. Lord, I pray we would all do it because of our love for you and our desire for another person to come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, to come to know the sweet grace of God that abounds over all sin. I pray that for us, Lord. Make us your people that not only displays your glory now in practice, but in the future, ages to come, we will be the trophy of your grace. Thank you again. We praise your name. In Christ I ask this. Amen.